some of you know when I was uh, younger and a little bit skinnier, that uh, every major milestone in my life was marked by getting a new tattoo. And so uh, when we got engaged, Melissa and I, uh, several years ago, I discussed with uh, by my best man, Robert Wang Jr. at the time, should I get another one to mark the occasion of this major life transition? And of course, uh, he wisely suggested, well, maybe you should ask your fiance first. Always good advice. So I asked Melissa, and her response via text was, I can't believe that you're getting another one. Now, I'm just curious, because we're still debating this after many years of marriage, how do you interpret that statement? I interpreted that statement by responding to Robert via text. My wife, Melissa said, yes, let's go do this. And so I went and got that, and that's why I still have that sick Decepticon symbol on my shoulder to this day. Now, it turns out that that's not what Melissa meant at all, but she was a really good sport about it. But I had to realize that I had made a mistake in this relationship, that I needed to do some repentance and reconciliation in the matter, and I recognized that restoration has to be accompanied by real change, right? I just can't say to her, so sorry that I blew it, and then go and do it again, like, you know, a couple months later. So for me, what that looked like was, yes, repentance required some absolution and apologizing, but it also required specific changes that I don't no longer, if I'm going to be married, make decisions and actions on my own, right? That I need to not just listen to the words, because I did hear the words that Melissa said, but I need to understand what does she mean? Actionable change. That's what repentance looks like. And so as we continue this passage this morning from last week, as we're recovering from our own failures in our relationship with God, What are the ways that we repent from sin and are restored from Jesus and move towards genuine change in our lives? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you will open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 10, we are in this great series called Restore, where we are learning together how we experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what's broken and that He doesn't simply replace the broken parts, but for God to build something new something better, and that it's not just about physical walls of Jerusalem, but that is the gospel. And we saw that we're in this part of the the passage now, or the part of the book of Nehemiah, where they've already finished rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That's not the point of the book. They built the walls to create a refuge, to welcome people to worship God for His glory and for our good. And as the people were hearing from God and reading, through reading His Word, they discovered that it's Not enough to restore the external circumstances and external walls if you don't deal with the internal rot of sin. And so we learned last time that sin is the problem, but that repentance is the answer. That we confess our sins to God in agreement with God's Word, and then we also need to turn from the devastation and death of sin back to life and joy and strength in God not to earn His forgiveness. We're not doing something to be good people, be good Christians, but in response to His forgiveness, that by faith in Jesus, the Son of God who dies sacrificially for our sin, rises victoriously as our Savior so that we can put sin to death through the power and life of Christ in very real ways. And so this morning, when we discover our relationship with God is broken, 
and we're going through this process of repentance? How do we continue fully experiencing restoration? And instead of starting at the beginning of chapter 10, we're going to start from the last verse of chapter 39. Chapter 9, excuse me, verse 39, 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And on the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor. Okay, we're going to read a lot of biblical names, so I'm, I'm going to read fast and confidently, and maybe my voice will go a little bit low if I can't read the word correctly. So, Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Melchizedek, Hattush, Shebaniah, Malak, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, oh boy, Ginnathan, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests. Okay, partway through. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Az, Azariah, Benui of the, son, uh, of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninum, the chiefs of the people. Now another section of people. Parosh, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, 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 <laughs> Bani, Asgard, Bibai, Adonijah, Big Boy, Adon, Atir, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bizai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshezebel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, uh, Halohesh, Pillah, Shobek, Reham, Hashabna, Maseah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Haram, and Bana. Okay, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Got through that. All right. So, uh, you know, someday, you know, why they don't have names like Chris, Hank, or Jerry, you know, it's just a. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So verse 39, because of all this, it starts this passage. In other words, in response to everything that happened in chapter 9, that they were reading the Bible, God was speaking to them so that people were repenting, turning their hearts and their lives from sin back to God. And because of all this that they had experienced in chapter 9, Nehemiah's people want more than just a momentary change, more than just feeling sorry or feeling bad over their sins, but to continue in this new life that God has given them. So what they do is they make a commitment to him by signing and sealing this document that's called a covenant. And it starts with those who set the example by their humility and leadership that we're the leaders, we're also the sinners. And so we're going to sign, confess and repent and sign this document first. <clears throat> so in verse 1, at the front of the line, is the hero of our story so far, Nehemiah the governor. In verses 2 through 8 are all the pastors and priests. In verses 9 through 13 are the Levites. These are the temple servants who are kind of like the administrative staff or the deacons of the church. And then in verses 14 to 27, these are all the political leaders of the city and nation, all the leaders. And so the question you should be asking is, okay, what exactly entails signing a covenant? What is the big deal about a covenant? Uh, it sounds like a contract, but it's more than that. Covenant is about relationship and commitment. Remember those two words, that it is a special relationship where we make vows and promises to the other person, and that as the people of God here discover what God says in the Bible, how we should live, 
how we should relate to him. They come together to make these commitments. Now, we've talked about this many times, and so as we're reading through, as you're hearing me say this, you should be thinking, well, doesn't that just make this another religion of try harder and do better so that I can earn the love, forgiveness, and acceptance of God? Relationships and commitment. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14 describes marriage as a covenant. And so think of it this way. It's a great picture of what a covenant is. Marriage is a distinct and unique relationship, right? You and I, we have a lot of relationships, but none of them are like the one I have with my spouse. And so we make vows and pledges and promises to each other because the conditions, the obligations, the benefits and the blessings, those are the centerpiece of the covenant that you have in marriage. It's about how we treat one another. These are the conditions and promises we're making about how we treat each other. And so let me put it to you this way. Even in my Bible this morning, I still keep this is the, the actual copy of my wedding vows from my wedding. I still keep them in my Bible. And the reason why is uh, I like to pray through them still. I pray through the promises that I made to my wife in front of many of you who were there that day. That I would love and serve and sacrifice for her as Jesus does for us. The promise to love and serve and sacrifice with her to others as Jesus does through us. I pray for that promise to encourage her with tenderness, to guard her with faithfulness, to practice forgiveness. Now, these vows, they're still an ongoing work in progress. But the way I think about them is that they aren't things in the covenant, they aren't things that I have to do to earn her love. These are things that I want to do because I already love her. And so I want you to be thinking about this way. A covenant is not a religion of following rules, but a relationship of following Jesus. There's a commitment to certain expectations and obligations, not out of have to, but because I want to, because I love and honor and serve and want to connect with that person. And so Nehemiah's people, they recognize in our relationship with God, in our marriage with God, we have been unfaithful. And so we need to reconcile and recover from sin by renewing our vows to him in this covenant. And so like them, as we are convicted by the word of God in repentance, that we want to renew our commitment to God in relationship. Well, how do we do that? Now, the good news is that you and I, we don't have to promise by our own ability and morality that we'll be a better person. But instead, we trust in the one who already is. Jesus declares in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, that the shedding of his blood is a new covenant, a new relationship where he exchanges the righteousness and life of himself for our sinfulness and death so that as we receive the unearned forgiveness of God by faith, that he empowers us to live out these commitments to a new life, a better life. And so I want to start off this morning by asking you, have you made a covenant with God through faith in Jesus? And if you already have, if you already have that relationship and that commitment to God, are you living out the commitments in your relationship? Not to earn the love and forgiveness and acceptance of God, but in response to receiving all those things from Him. Well, what does that look like? There's Four areas of pledges that 
these covenant makers make, binding covenant pledges that they make towards God, starting in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's stop right there. So they make four covenant pledges as they are repenting and turning away from sin, turning towards God, making relational commitments, making marriage vows to Him. And so in verse 29, the first and overarching promise that they make that defines all the other ones in this passage is that we renew our commitment to obeying God in His Word, first and foremost, that we cannot live as His children, as His uh, family, as His people. We can't do ministry and life together that honors Him unless we are willing to obey what God has to say. And how does He do that? How do we know what He says? You and I both know this. He has spoken to us through Scriptures to understand who He is, what He does, how, he li- how we are to live. And that Scriptures is our highest authority. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't listen to human laws or reason or science or medicine. And yet, we test all of those things by the Bible because it alone is perfect and divinely inspired and the very words of God. So, whatever counsel you receive from a friend, whatever opinion you receive from the culture, whatever insight you gain from experience, we compare it against Scriptures and ultimately we obey Scriptures. It's a question. Are you living, trying to live, making that vow to live in obedience to the Word of God. And not just the parts that we like, loving your neighbor and and feeding the poor. Things like sexual purity outside of marriage. Loving and honoring your spouse. Forgiving others, including your spouse, even when they are not right. Not being greedy or gluttonous not being selfish and self-righteous. You see, we need to humble ourselves, repentant of our sin, and trust that God, His ways, and His word are good. That is the first and foremost overarching vow that they make to God. The second pledge in obedience to Scriptures applies to family. Look at verse 30, that they promise not to give their daughters or their sons in marriage to people who don't worship God. That's what they mean by the peoples of the lands, the Canaanites who don't worship the Lord. And we might think, well, that's a very Old Testament kind of covenant thing. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says that we are not to be yoked. We're commanded. Don't be yoked with someone who is not a believer, someone who doesn't love Jesus and live for Jesus. And so, 
we also, like them, need to renew our commitment to lead our families into godly marriage for ourselves, for our children, that we would covenant with God that ourselves and our children would not enter into marriage with anyone unless they love Jesus. And I know I've had conversations with many, many young men and young adults over the years. Some men say, but she's so hot. And I answer to them, so is hell. But you don't want to go there. And then some ladies will tell me, well, he believes in God. And James chapter 2, verse 19 says, so do demons, but you don't want to marry one. Now, I know you're thinking like, this, Josh, this sounds very judgmental and very rejecting. And I would argue that it's actually very loving and very lasting. And here's why. I want you to think about it this way. How can I share the most intimate human relationship if I cannot share your most important relationship in Christ with that person? How do I tell someone that Jesus is my greatest treasure when I'm actively living in disobedience to him? You see, nothing is more loving and lasting than pointing people to Jesus as your priority and your authority, as your Savior and Lord, as your greatest fulfillment and joy. So when the Bible says that we need to be equally yoked, it means making sure that that other person is not just a Christian, so to speak, but that they love and worship Jesus the way that you do, that both of you are reading the Bible, that both of you are praying together, that both of you share God's values and vision for your life and your future and your family. It means that if you're a parent, that you're making sure that you raise your kids to love, serve, and live for Jesus, and that you never hand them off to someone who doesn't. I came home from work uh, one day during a week, this is a couple years ago, and I was met at the door by this little three-year-old girl. She was three years old at the time, my daughter. She met me at the door. She was dressed up by her big sister, Emily, and she asked me, Daddy, will you marry me? Now, I had to have a conversation with her to explain to her uh, I'm already married and that we are already a family and that we will always be family and that in marriage what happens is that since we're already family, marriage, you add someone new to your family. You start your own family. And so she said, okay, she gets that. So ever since then, I've been very intentional about showing her how should a man love and serve Jesus and how should a man love and serve her. And so we talk about the Bible together. We talk about Jesus. We pray together. We sing together. She loves to sing at the top of her lungs. You wouldn't know it from seeing this introverted little girl. We make sure that we snuggle together because she loves to snuggle all the time. She gets to see what it's like to feel honored and cherished. And she gets to experience what it's like when daddy asks for forgiveness because I failed her. And so when the day comes, you know, I tell her that Jesus and daddy are the men in your life right now. And when that day comes, that a young man shows interest in you then you, me, and Jesus are going to sit down together and figure it out together. And if he is not a singing, snuggling, spirit-filled Jesus lover, then the answer is going to be no. Because I am not going to allow someone to shipwreck this beautiful little lady's faith and her life. 
Will you consider covenanting, covenanting with God not to pursue, not to get physically or emotionally entangled in any way with anyone who is not loving Jesus if you do? And I want you to understand how much confusion and conflict we experience in marriage or raising a child when one person loves Jesus and the other person doesn't. When one person is praying and the other one doesn't. When one person wants to worship at church and the other one doesn't. When one person, Jesus, is their highest priority and the other one isn't. When one person goes to the Bible as their final authority and the other one doesn't. There's all kinds of intimacy that we can share in a relationship. And all those other ways of intimacy are good, but they are secondary to the spiritual connection of our souls that we have in covenant before God. Third pledge in obedience to Scripture. The people of God make a pledge to renew our commitment to the worship of God as one of their highest priorities in life. In verse 31, the people declare it's so important that they shut down their businesses for an entire day so that they can gather together to worship the Lord to take a day off, to rest from their labor. And they do so out of obedience to the Bible. They're honoring God and the rhythm that he established in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. That God worked for six days, and then he rested and blessed it as holy. And then in Exodus chapter 20, we work and rest to worship him as holy. And so we want to pursue the kind of life that God has set up for us by his example and his instruction. Now, for those of you who are less familiar with the Bible, historically, the people of God would rest on the seventh day, on the Saturdays, uh, until all the way up until the time of Jesus. And then what Christians started doing is they started worshiping God on Sundays in honor of Easter, in honor of the resurrection of Christ. Now, what happened in history is that Americans, uh, we couldn't decide uh, which day to take off, and so we decided to invent the two-day weekend. That's why you get Saturdays and Sundays off historically, because of, you can thank God for that. And so uh, our country officially adopted that in 1932. It was a big hit. It's kind of spread throughout other countries as well. But the lesson there is that it's not the day of worship that's most important, but the object of worship, Jesus Christ. That your Sabbath is not in a day, but in Him. That's why Jesus declares to us in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will be your Sabbath, in other words. And yet, it's important for us to continue adhering to the principle of Sabbath because if you're the type of person like me who wants to work every day of your life, then you're not going to have the time or the energy or the desire to go to church, to worship God, to grow your faith, to enjoy your family and your friends and the fruits of your labor. Then you'll be robbed of that life that God describes in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, the joy the strength, the intimacy of the Lord. So I want to ask you, are you really taking a day off to orient your life around the worship of God because you love Him and you honor Him and you trust that His commands are good? And if not, what needs to change? One last pledge, and it's interesting because this actually covers the largest portion of this covenant is devoted to this final vow, specifically how we deal with our money and re resources in relationship with God. 
Verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, that's part of the offering table to God, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle. That doesn't mean they sacrifice their sons means they offered their firstborn sons in service to the Lord as, as a part of the way of honoring God. As it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes. Tithe means a tenth, a tenth of all their income, of all their gain. The tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest and the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gateskeepers and the singers, because those were all like church staff back then. We will not neglect the house of our God. So in verses 32 to 34, they vow to give all these various offerings throughout the entire year. Money offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, festival offerings. All for the worship as it is written in the law. In other words, they were regularly making sacrifices to the glory of God in accordance with the word of God. Verses 32 to 39, they make a vow to bring the first fruit of their crops and their flocks, of their grain, of their wine, of their oil, and even the service of their firstborn sons for all the work of the house of God. Did you hear that? Nine times it says, all for the work of the house of the Lord. In other words, they were giving regularly to fund the ministry and maintenance of the church, including paying the staff and the bills, because we will not neglect the house of our God. And they vowed to give a tremendous amount for both the worship of God and the work of God. And so the lesson here is that we renew our commitment by giving God our first fruits. What does that mean when we hear that in the Bible? It means giving to God first. It means giving to God best because He is the highest priority. And so for many of you, you know we've talked about this before, that one of the things that we try to practice is if God comes first, if we give to Him first, that before I pay my mortgage, before I pay my bills, before I buy my groceries, before I buy my luxuries, do I give first and best to God and His ministry? That was a hard habit for me to start forming because I would always in the past pay all my bills and see whatever's left over and then give whatever I can from that leftovers. Now, 
Listen to me very carefully because some of us are not wise with money. It doesn't mean neglecting your responsibilities. What it does mean is that instead I trust God's guidance and His grace to make me a good manager of my time, my talent, and my treasures for the, for the rest of my financial needs and obligations. That somehow when I give to God, whatever percentage that is, that w- with whatever's left, God can multiply that to meet the needs that we have and to give me the wisdom how to do that. Secondly, first fruit also means in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 17 to 18, that when they gave their first fruits, that they didn't give God a blemished lamb or a lamb that was lame. In other words, it means that when we give to God, we don't give our janky lamb, we don't give our broken couches, we don't give our old TVs, we don't just try to get rid of the junk lying around our house because we wanted to clean, clear out our homes. We give God our first fruits, not our leftovers. Now, oftentimes, we think giving to God means, well, we're supposed to give 10%. That's what a tithe means. I give God 10%, and then the rest is mine to do whatever I want with that. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1 says that God owns it all. Luke chapter 16, verse 10 through 12 says that if God is the owner of it all, then he entrusts us with what we have as stewards, that it's not ours, it's his, and that we use those things according to his priorities. So do you have to give a tithe? No. As a New Testament Christian, you don't need to give a tenth of your income or your, uh, of your money. In fact, in this passage, the Jewish people here, they're not giving a tithe, a tenth percent. They're giving much more than that. They're giving, if you read the passage carefully, verse 32 through 34, is that they give all these worship offerings and first fruits in addition to their tithes that appear in verse 37. And so what that means for us is that if we covenant with God to be giving to Him and His work, that we don't need to follow a law of a set percentage. But instead, God calls us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 to give cheerfully regularly, sacrificially, and generously, whatever that looks like. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, some of you are hearing this as, well, God just wants my money. No, He wants your heart. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 34, that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So if you want to know where your heart is, then you follow your budget, follow where your treasure is how you use money, how you spend, how you save, how you invest, how you give. Because all of those things, those are not just financial decisions, they are worship decisions. They're about who or what do I love? Who or what is Lord? Who or what is is the priority in my life? And instead of it being an obligation to God, we commit to give as, as we experience and express and are strengthened in our love that we have in a covenant relationship. You understand what I mean? That as we give, instead of like, I have to do this and I'm just obligated, it's just a rule I have to follow, that when we're giving to God, what it does is it strengthens our relationship, our love for God. Let me put it to you this way. After 10 years of marriage, Cindy and Chip Altimos, they were in the long process of getting a divorce. So they had separated and they even agreed to date other people at that time. Now, five years into their very painful separation, Chip landed in the hospital with kidney failure. His health was nosediving. It deteriorated rapidly. And his soon-to-be ex-wife actually decided to come to his aid. And despite 
Chip already being in another relationship at that time. Later on, Cindy told the press, he's still my husband. And there's no way that I can walk around with two kidneys and, and that he has none. It was the right thing to do. And so she agreed to donate one of her kidneys. And she told Chip, look, there's no strings attached. I'm not asking for any written agreement seeking a better share when we get to the divorce court. Now, a funny thing happened as they were both recovering in the hospital. They fell back in love with one another. Because Chip thought to himself, why would I want to date someone else when I have this woman who would even give a part of herself so that I can keep on living? And so he put an end to the other relationship and asked Cindy to come back home with him. And they remained married 17 years later. Isn't that the gospel? That Jesus is a giver, and he doesn't just give part of himself. He offers up all of himself, his life, his death, his resurrection, to demonstrate his tremendous love for us. And that's why we fall back in love with him when we had turned our back on him. That's why we respond thankfully by giving cheerfully and sacrificially to our great giver, not to earn his love, but in response to it and to express ours back. That is why we make commitments in relationships. So, how regularly, how generously are you giving to God his work and his ministry? It's a relational question, not an obligation question, because it's a question of do I trust God? Do I honor Jesus by giving my first and my best fruit to him or my leftovers? As we're confronted with the holiness and goodness of God in his word and at the cross, we realize how short we fall, how much we hurt God and betray God and turn our back on him. And yet in response to our failures, he offers unfailing love and grace for us. So we don't simply apologize. If we want to experience reconciliation and restoration, we need real change. And so as you and I, as we obey the Lord, as we listen to his word, as we're convicted by the word of God in repentance, may you renew your commitments to God in relationship. And maybe for some of you, you've never entered into a covenant relationship with Jesus. Perhaps it's time that you put your trust and your life in His hands. Repenting of sin, receiving forgiveness, and responding by orient orienting your entire life around Him, maybe for the first time, hopefully for a lifetime. Or, some of you, I know it's been a rough past couple of years. I know many people who love Jesus and have really struggled in their relationships with God, and you've found yourself slowly sliding away over, from Him over these past two years of having to do church online or maybe dropped out of community. Perhaps it's time for you to renew your vows and rededicate your life and your relationship to Jesus. if you know that you love Jesus and that you are deeply loved by him, these are the kind of commitments we make in a relationship that I will 
read your word, that I will lead my family, that I will worship the Lord, that I will be a good steward, that I will be a generous giver in response to the tremendous grace of God at the cross and an empty tomb. And so may you and I grow in relationship with Jesus by growing in our commitments to Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty, the truth, and the grace of your word. That it's not a hammer pounding us with the rules that we need to follow. But it is a relationship showing us how to live and love you and respond to your life and love in us. And so this morning, I don't know who you're saying things to or what you're trying to say to each of us. But I know that you want each of us to hear from you. As we turn from our brokenness and sinfulness, may your grace, your unearned, freely given grace and sacrifice move our hearts to cause us to fall in love with you again, to make vows and commitments that aren't just empty promises or religious words, but like men and women who are renewing, who renew their vows again in their marriage, that we want to do more than just say sorry for what the wrongs we've done. We want to make commitments because we love you, because you first loved us. And on our own, we cannot keep the promises that we make, but by the power of the gospel, the blood of Jesus that covers all of our sins, It makes us so that we can and will be free. It makes us so that we can live a life pursuing after you. And so God, would you help us to fall in love with you, to respond to your word regularly, to offer up our families and ourselves and our marriages to you, not our way, but your way to make the worship of the living God and our rest our, the way that our life would revolve and orient ourselves around you. Teach us to hold all the good and perfect gifts you've given us with an open hand, trusting our loving God. And like a dad who gives us like a $10,000 check of allowance, Help us to cheerfully be able to give back to our daddy and know that it's all yours. And may it set our hearts free from our selfishness and our sinfulness today. We renew our vow before you, God. We love you. We're thankful for you. We trust you and we'll follow you. In Jesus' name.